You're listening to Christ-Centered Preaching, Preparation and Delivery of Sermons, Lesson 9. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. If you were uh, thinking about uh, midterm questions, the first one on your review is, what are three major components of exposition? So three major components of exposition evident in Old Testament models that were systematized in synagogue worship patterns reflected in the New Testament? That's a very long question that says, what pattern do you see established in the Old Testament that continues into the New Testament for presenting and preaching biblical text. You have presentation of the Word, then what? Explanation of the Word, and then exhortation based on the Word. Remember that pattern that you saw from Nehemiah that picks up and moves through? So you have presentation of the Word, explanation of the Word, and then exhortation based upon the Word. Now, that's uh, those components of biblical pattern that follow through. The next question, what are three essential components of exposition? So now you're just looking at that explanation component, right? So what are three essential elements of exposition that are to be included in every main point? And we, of course, have to say of a formal traditional sermon. We recognize these will be varied. But if you're looking at a formal main point, you have what? Always included explanation, illustration, Application, explanation, illustration, application are the three formal elements. And uh, the next question is very, what shall I say, stereotypical, and we have to acknowledge that. What is the proportion of these expositional elements for a general audience? You know, it's kind of saying for a very generic sermon, what proportion would explanation, illustration, application have? A third, a third, a third. But, of course, the next question is even more critical, which is, how may a double helix represent the expositional structure of a sermon's main points? And how may this structure vary depending on target audience? Which means, of course, explanation, illustration, application may do what? Vary tremendously. So if you're looking at that double helix, those bubbles may swell or shrink accordingly to the nature of the subject, the nature of the audience, the nature of you, all the nature of the situation. So many variables there that we recognize. I will just tell you straight out, almost every year, I simply ask for people to reproduce the double helix and begin to explain its components. Okay, so we're going to now keep adding to it, but it's very common that I'll say, all right, tell me what the components are, tell me how they vary, and we will see they get more involved as we go, but it's very common that I ask people to reproduce that. And then, just to get us into today, it's not on your questions, but I think you'll have it in your brain, to, description, to dis- distinguish, it's often important to distinguish the Scripture intro from the what? The sermon intro. The Scripture intro is introducing the Scripture. The sermon intro is introducing the sermon. And sometimes when we confuse those two things, it's where we actually deaden the beginning of the sermon by confusing those two elements. 
to let you know where we are and where we're going, I think you recognize next week are the preaching lectures. So let me give you a quick schedule there again. The preaching lectures start actually on Tuesday morning. So Tuesday morning in chapel at 9.30. So that's the first of the preaching lectures. Alistair Begg will be the one who is here, and Alistair will be speaking on Tuesday morning. That's at 9.30. Then Wednesday, you remember that classes are called off, and all day long is the preaching conference. And everybody who's in a homiletics course through the semester is required to come. So those are the times again. Chapel is at 8.30 that morning. So the chapel period starts at 8.30 on Wednesday. 8.30 to 11 is the first uh, lecture series portion. Then 10.30 to 12. Lunch is 12 to 1. And then 1.30 to 3. So it's pretty much the entire school day starting from 8.30 and going to 3 with an hour's lunch break. So again, that's Alistair Begg. Now, you have work assignments, you can't come, etc. They will be reproduced on tapes for you to receive. You will be tested on that material, though, just, you know, so that you need to be aware that uh, that will be part of the midterm, is you're being tested on the material that's presented in the preaching lectures. So if you absolutely cannot come again, because classes are not not, uh, being held, the assumption is that people can come, most of you, but if you can't, uh, the tapes will be made available to you. Okay, so that's next uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. And then a number of people were asking about um, Tim Keller. Tim is actually speaking at the pastor's conference, which has gotten so large that we've had to do it off campus. But we will ask him to come and speak on Thursday morning and actually host a special chapel for students who are not able to go out to the the pastor's conference because we've had to move it off campus. We've asked Tim to come on Thursday morning and there will be a special chapel, not usually scheduled for Thursday mornings, but in which we uh, hear Tim Keller then on Thursday morning as well. So that's uh, coming. Actually, it looks like it's a tremendous week ahead. So that's a great blessing to have them in town. Michael? Uh, good question. Do you have to sign up for the Wilson Lectures? No, unless you're doing it for a separate credit. There are very few people who take it for elective credit, and they have extra assignments to do. So unless you're signing up for elective credit, no, you just attend and you do not have to sign up. If you're going to the pastor's conference, uh, that not only you sign up, I mean, there are registration fees, etc. if you're participating in the pastor's conference. I think some of that's been in your boxes and you may know more details than I do on that. But um, again, you don't have to sign up for Tim Keller on Thursday morning. He'll be here for us. But Michael... That's right. The Thanksgiving break, as you're planning for it, I mean, we just can't cancel classes on both sides of that. So we will continue to have class on both sides of the Thanksgiving break, is the way to, is the way to say it. Thanksgiving break starts Thursday, and we will be doing devotionals. That's the sequence that we will be in, where we will actually be broken into small sections and being devo- doing devotionals, presenting to each other across the campus. So in order for us to sequence, we, we need to keep that in effect at this point. Now, I think what I said was, if you know you absolutely you know, have to be gone, then you'll have to make sure you trade with someone if you happen to be scheduled to be speaking on that day. 
Does that make sense? On the, on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, if you're scheduled to be a speaker on that day, you'll have to be careful to trade with someone. Well, I'm sorry. The Thanksgiving break is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So there's no classes in that period, right? There's not. There's no classes Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So there's no classes. It's the Wednesday that I typically get concerned about, that people make their travel plans to get away at that point. And I'm saying, you know, I can't say never don't do that, but I'm saying there will be assignments due on that Wednesday because people have to be preaching to one another on that day. Well, it wouldn't be the day after Thanksgiving. It would be the Wednesday following, right? Right. The way people often work, I know this would never happen with anybody in this class. <laughs> but the way people think is, I got this four days in the middle of that week. Why not just take the whole week? And that's what I'm saying you can't do. I mean, you can do, but there will be consequences because you won't be able to get your assignment done because we are speaking to one another and being graded on that on the Wednesday before and what would then be the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. Aaron? It's just regular chapel time. Okay. It starts just during regular chapel time. And, and the Thursday is at 9.30? The Thursday is at 9.00. Oh, good question. I don't know. Correct. There is chapel the next Friday as well. But, you know, that's a good question. I don't know what... Anybody know this? Anybody from student services in here at the moment? No, I actually don't know what on that special uh, chapel that was. I was told was on Thursday. I just assumed it was at the normal time, but I don't know that for sure. So we'll, uh, it's got to dodge classes somehow. So whatever, whatever it is, it's, it's uh, sequenced after the class time. Let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll move forward here. Father, we call you our Lord and Master. We do so because you give us direction and requirements. But you also provide what you require. So you are not merely our master, but our redeemer. And we would ask this day that you would teach us to be dependent on you. Not merely for matters great and the times of extremity, but Father, in the ordinary course of life, this class period, what we do the rest of this day, what we think about as we are preparing these messages for your people long term, would you help us even in our hearts now to be saying, Lord, don't send us up to do this task if you don't go with us. Send your spirit even now to equip us for the purposes to which you call us. We ask your aid, your blessing, your enablement through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Here's what we're doing today. Under the goal for the lesson is to understand the basic subdivisions. And the key there is the word sub. We're understanding the basic subdivisions of a sermon in standard expository development. Just to give you the, the big picture of where we have been and where we are going, it's this. We're, we're zooming in from where we've been, right? We start out by saying, what's the general nature of preaching, the Word of God? What's the nature of the servant of the Word of God? What's the idea of what's in the text? What's the text like? What are rules and ideas for selecting text? Then tools for interpreting the text. But at some point, we had to start dealing with the text, and so we begin constructing sermons, which we said are taking that exegetical material that comes out of the exegetical outline and other research and beginning to enfold it into a homiletical outline. 
And we've seen the structure take some form now over the course of these weeks in which we recognize that there is a scripture reading. And the preaching is based upon that reading of the word. There's also, we learned last time now, a scripture introduction. And we begin to move in in a taxonomy here and get terms to deal with the anatomy of a sermon. So we know that the scripture intro actually has elements in it, like the CNC. Remember, contextualization and creation of longing. It's fairly brief, but we're trying to get people into the reading of the word. We know that after the reading of the word, there will be an introduction. And this is the sermon introduction. And we begin to recognize this itself had various components, like it was to arouse attention, introduce the subject, make an identifiable FCF, prepare for the proposition and concept and terminology, and bond to Scripture. So we recognize there were these various components of the introduction, which was getting us ready for the proposition. And the proposition, we recognize, had its own components. It was a component of what is true and what to do about it. Remember, principle plus application. So the proposition had its own components. Now we begin to look at the body of the sermon, and we begin doing that by just thinking of the skeleton, the main point structures. So we see that there are these, uh, these big ribs, as it were, of the sermon, of this main point structure. But then we say we've got to define the meat that's going into, onto these bones here. So we begin to look at main points. And we recognize they have a configuration themselves. And we described it as this double helix, which was explanation, illustration, and application. We know that these components can flip. They don't have to be in that standard order. They usually are, but they don't have to be. Explanation, illustration, application. And where we are today is this. We're now doing some microsurgery, and we're going right into there, and we're saying, what are the components of the explanation? So what are the components of that piece right there and begin to think of them? Of course, we know later on we'll be looking at the components of illustration and application. But for today, we are going to look at the components of the explanation, particularly its minor ribs, okay? So we're going to be beginning to look at kind of the, some of the filamental structure, as it were, in the subpoints. And um, that pretty much gets us ready, by the way, just for... Uh, for page two of your outline that you're reading with me today. So everything that I was just saying is those divisions of the sermon reviewed. Okay, that's what that material was that I was just drawing in picture form for us here. And you see then, we are ready now to begin analyzing the divisions of explanation within the main points. But I do want to back up just a little bit before we go in and begin to look at that filamental structure and remind ourselves what are the guidelines for the main point divisions themselves? So as we think of these big pieces, we need to think again the strategy that we were uh, dealing with when we consider the number and nature of the main points. There are going to be three of these, okay? So things that we need to consider for the number and the nature of main points. Now, again, you're going to hear it and you're going to go, of course. I mean, these are, these are kind of commonsensical things, but they help us get ready for thinking about what subpoints are. So the first thing is this. In determining the number and nature of main points, we use the number of divisions necessary. We use the number of divisions necessary to present the thought of the passage. Key phrase here is present the thought. 
We use the number divisions necessary to present the thought of the passage. So whatever is necessary to get the thought of the passage in front of us, that's how we're choosing the number. We've said there could be three-point messages. That's kind of standard. But we know there can be two-point messages. There can be four or more point messages. Sometimes we'll discover later there can be one-point messages. But we'll choose the number of divisions necessary to present the thought of the passage. Number two, we'll use the number of divisions necessary to cover the territory. We'll use the number of divisions necessary to cover the territory. The expositor's ethic is to open the Bible and say, let me tell you what this passage says. Let me tell you what this passage means. Now, when I do that, if I say, so I'll explain verse 1, and I'll explain verse 2, and I'll explain verse 4, and I'll explain verse 5, what did I just fail to do? I didn't explain verse 3. That's what covering the territory is about. The passage that I present as the expository unit, I will cover that territory. Because I've said to you as an expositor, I will explain what this means. And if you just skip portions, then you can't do that. Now, does that mean you cover every portion equally? No. Some is going to need a lot of attention. Some will need a little of attention, right? Some, you might take three verses and group it into one main point. You might take another verse and divide it into, into four subpoints. You know, it, it, will, it will vary the amount of attention you feel is needed to explain the passage. But the goal is to cover the territory. The old language, and you'll still see it in a lot of homiletics textbooks, is to exhaust the passage. That was the old language. Why is that a little problematic to our ears. So when you look at the text, you should exhaust the passage. <laughs> Deanna says you might exhaust the people. Uh, <laughs> that's true, too. We, I mean, we typically think about the inexhaustible riches of the Word of God, right? That you're never going to get to the bottom of it. You'll never plumb the full depths. But that really wasn't what the old language meant. It really meant cover the territory. So uh, that's what we're going to mind ourselves to do as well, is cover the territory. Now, both of these were about presenting the thought of the passage and covering the territory of the passage. The third reason that we determine the number and nature of main points is this. We use the number of divisions necessary to organize the thought of the sermon. We use the number of divisions necessary to organize the thought of the sermon. Present the thought of the passage, cover the passage, but now we have to organize the thought of the sermon itself. So there's the the communicative obligations as well. And that organization will be things like, I need to choose the number to make, the number of points necessary to make this logical and proportional and progressive. I'll choose the number of points necessary to make the sermon logical, proportional, and progressive. Proportional because we don't want one main point to last 30 seconds and the next one to last 30 minutes. Okay, it needs to be roughly, you know, not exact, but roughly proportional. And to not feel like we're just stuck in one place, that we're progressing as we move through the message. So we choose the number of divisions necessary to make the sermon logical, proportional, and progressive. But now I think you begin to feel, if I've got a 30-minute message or so, then having these main points coming every eight to ten minutes, they may themselves get lost. How do I connect these pieces? And the answer is we have subdivisions 
that are themselves anchored by subpoints. So this explanation portion of the main point itself has navigation signs in it. And those navigation signs are subpoints that move us through that main point and get us to the next main point. So we're going to talk about for a while the nature of subpoints and their key characteristics. First, or A in your outline here, 3A, subpoints complement. Subpoints complement that is support or prove their specific main point. Now, as obvious as that is, we look at the subpoint and we're saying, does it deal with my main point? Because the tendency is to develop a main point that's somewhere in the passage, and then as you're simply moving through the passage, begin to identify subpoints, but they don't conceptually link to that main point. You're moving through the pattern of the passage, but not developing the thought of your main point, which may mean that you have to move that subpoint to another main point. Whatever it is, you want to make sure this subpoint complements or supports its specific main point. Remember the little stool with all the legs under it for proposition and main points? Same stool works for main points and its subpoints, right? The main points is the top, and all the subpoints have to conceptually fit under that main point. Number two, subpoints relate to their main point in the same way. Subpoints relate to their main point in the same way. That is, they can answer a similar, not same necessarily, but a similar diagnostic question or support the main point in the same way. Now, if you hear it, you'll automatically know what I'm talking about. Let me give you a main point and subpoints, and you tell me which one doesn't fit, okay? Because it doesn't develop the main point in the same way as the others. Just listen to it, and your ear will tell you. Because God is sovereign, we should honor Him. Main point. Because God is sovereign, we should honor Him. Subpoints. We should obey Him. We should trust Him. Prayer leads to godliness. Which one is not like the others? Number three. Now, it may be a very true statement. Prayer leads to godliness. It may be within the text. It is even something about honoring a sovereign God. Prayer leads us to, you know, it even conceptually may fit. But it is not worded like the others. It does not develop the main point in a similar or same way. Let me just read it again. Because God is sovereign, we should honor Him. We should obey Him. We should trust Him. Prayer leads to godliness. What question is being answered by we should obey Him? It's a how question, right? How should we honor Him? Because God is sovereign, we should honor Him. How should we honor Him? We should obey Him. We should trust Him. Prayer leads to godliness. Now convert it. How could you take prayer leads to godliness and make it fit as a subpoint? We should trust Him. We should, we should obey Him. We should trust Him. Prayer leads to godliness. Make it fit. We should, we should pray to Him. Okay. You word it in such a way that it will answer a similar or same diagnostic question. What you just noticed was strong parallelism, right? The parallelism will usually make you word things in such a way that they are developing the main point in the same way. Now, they may be answering slightly different questions, but they're developing the main point in the same way. C, again, fairly obvious, subpoints are about the one thing the main point is about, not new subjects. 
Sometimes people confuse that. Oh, here's a subpoint. I'm talking about something else now. No. The subpoints are subdivisions of their main point. They're not about new subjects. They're about the development of that subject. Okay, so they stick on point. D, subpoints ordinarily support the developmental or develop the developmental clause. We also call that the magnet clause, right? Subpoints ordinarily support or develop the developmental clause, that is the magnet clause of the main point. Now let's just remind ourselves again. The magnet clause is the one with the keyword change, right? That triggers the ear. Oh, there's something different in that parallel phrase. So those subpoints are dealing with what attracts the attention of the ear in the main point. What's different in the main point, the subpoints are about that, which means they are supporting or developing the magnet clause. The very point of the magnet clause was to draw attention to itself. And therefore, it draws the explanation of the subpoints. The subpoints are about the magnet clause. Quick reminder, where did you develop the anchor clause? Just before or after the proposition? Did I say magnet clause? The anchor clause. The anchor clause of the main points. Remember the thing that doesn't change? Remember, that's the basis of the sermon. So the anchor clause is getting developed way up here, possibly early in the first main point. But the magnet clauses, the developmental side, are the ones that are getting the attention of the explanation. The anchor clause typically is kind of a taken-for-granted, understand-very-quickly thing that is developed very early. And then the magnet clause is what is drawing the attention of the explanation. For this reason, E, subpoints are brief. Subpoints are brief statements of principle. See the double underline there? Or application, not both. Propositions were principle and application. Main points were principle and application. But subpoints are only going to be about one side of the main point, right? Only about the magnet clause. So subpoints are going to be principle or application because they're only developing the one side. So whatever that one side was, you typically know that's what the subpoints will be. Just to continue in there, subpoints are generally not weddings of principle and application because only the magnet clause, because only the magnet clause of the main point is being proven, which is either principle or application. This means subpoints are usually short sentences, short sentences, it's not as important as the next fill-in. They are usually short sentences or sentence fragments. They are short sentences or sentence fragments. We'll see more why that is in just a minute. How you set them up will depend if whether will determine whether they are sentences or just portions of sentences, and we'll talk about it in just a minute. But sometimes subpoints are not complete sentences. They may only just be sentence fragments. Here's the idea of what you're doing with subpoints. For the average listener, the sermon is coming to them, I think of that, that mud wall of words just coming at them. All these words, 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 words coming at them. And what subpoints are, are trying to say, here's a way to navigate through there. And the way I'm doing it, to change the metaphor now, is I'm going to be hanging a lot of thought on these subpoints. Instead of just telling you the nature of the aorist tense of the Greek is complete, you know, so why is he telling me all that? Subpoint, bang, I hammer a peg on the door, and now I can hang lots of information on it. 
So now I know what you're talking. Why are you telling me it's completed action? Because I need to know you're saying because God has taken care of this. Look, even the wording of the verb is, when I say God has taken care of it, that was my thought peg. Subpoints are the thought peg that we begin to hang all our exegetical, explanatory information upon. Brief rule of thumb, if the explanation is longer than a long paragraph on a page, you know, if you're getting beyond a third of a page or so, you're going to need another subpoint. Just kind of a general rule of thumb. Now, you don't always need subpoints. Sometimes you can function without them because main points may be fairly clear. Just move on. But usually, if you know you've got more than a, a long paragraph of explanation, you're going to need another subpoint. Subpoints say, here's a large paragraph of thought. I'm going to give you the general thought first, the peg on the door, before I start hanging all this information on it. So subpoints are giving people a way to navigate through as we give them that information. Let's uh, um, go on to some of this other material that uh, will help us, and then we'll begin to look at lots of examples. F. Subpoints exhibit unity. That is, they're about one thing. That is, whatever the subpoint is. Uniqueness. They exhibit unity and uniqueness. That is, they're not coexistent either. You know, we shouldn't say, I thought you just said that. No, they are unique. They exhibit parallelism. Parallelism. They reflect one another in wording. And progression. They consistently lead to the larger concept. This plus this plus this. I understand the whole. So they're progressive as well. Subpoints are not required. Well, that's an interesting thought. See the not? That's the one thing to underline. Subpoints are not required. But if they are given, they must be multiple. If you had only one subpoint, what should it have been? It should have been the main point. Sub means sub. It's a subdivision. You don't have just one subdivision. There have to be at least two. Okay, so if you have subpoints, there should be at least two. If you have only one, relook at your main point and reword it somehow, okay, so that you don't just have one subpoint. You may simply say, I don't need subpoints. You know, this is so clear. God says you should pray and not give up. What that means is, regardless of your circumstances, you should not give up seeking God. Now, I probably don't need to tell you the iterative nature of the Greek present tense now. I don't need a paragraph. I just probably need to say that. It's time to illustrate and apply and move on. So not all main points need multiple paragraphs of explanation, which means not all main points need subpoints. But if they do have multiple paragraphs of explanation, we typically will need subpoints for our hearers to navigate through. H, subpoints usually point to a specific portion of the text. Subpoints usually point to a specific portion of the text. That is, we often show the verse after the subpoint in our outline. We'll say, you should honor God. Parenthesis, verse 3. What portion of the text supports what I just said? Can you think of some exceptions where there might not be a verse reference that is supporting your subpoint? What other information might you import that might need to be a subpoint? Context is the key thing. There may be some historical context. There may be some literary context that is not a verse in this passage, but is something that you're saying, you need to know this in order to know what that main point's about. Most of the time, most of the time, there will be a direct verse reference in the text to every subpoint. We'll talk more on that later, but I'll show you some examples here in just a bit. 
subpoints usually are symmetrical and proportional. Subpoints usually are symmetrical and proportional. They are similar in length to each other under a main point and proportional. That is, they fairly evenly divide the explanation. Right? I don't, I don't have one subpoint that runs a third of a paragraph and another subpoint that runs five paragraphs. Right? They're roughly evenly dividing the explanation of a main point. And J, the really tough one here, subpoints develop the homiletical outline. Subpoints develop the homiletical outline rather than outline the text. That is, merely describe the text. The classic word of homileticians is subpoints are stated as principles, not mere statements of fact. Stated as principles, not mere statements of fact. I'll show you because I know that's often confusing just what that means. When you say that you're, they are not um, merely describing a text. Here's an example of subpoints that merely describe the text. Because God blesses faithfulness, we should obey him. My first subpoint is Israel confronted Jericho. My second, Israel marched around Jericho. My third, the walls of Jericho fell. Is it true? Yes. Is it taken from the text? Yes. Does it describe accurately what happens in the text? Yes. But they are simply statements of fact. There are no principles being developed such as this would show. Now, recognize it's the same passage. Because God blesses faithfulness, we should obey him. Faithfulness requires confronting God's enemies. Do you hear the principle? What's the fact that supports that? Who did Israel go up against? They went up against Jericho. Okay? So, I'm going to bring those facts into this explanation paragraph, right? But the subpoint itself is where is a principle of biblical truth. It's not just a regurgitation of the facts of the text. It's the principle the facts will support. Because what you're ultimately developing is, we, sh we should obey him, right? So you're developing the principle up here. It has to be these, these things were his principle. Faithfulness requires obeying God's word. What was the simple fact? Israel marched around Jericho. Who told them to do that? God told them to do that. The walls of Jericho fell. Faithfulness requires obeying God's word. Faithfulness results in seeing God's hand. Now, faithfulness results in seeing God's hand. What facts will support that? The walls came tumbling down. <laughs> okay? So, it's not merely stating the facts of the text again. Homiletical outline, it's developing the principles the facts will support. Now, the place that we'll deal the most with this is actually a semester from now when we begin dealing with narrative passages. As we begin to look at the accounts of Scripture, that's where people are tempted to make the facts of the text the points of their outline. This semester, you're dealing with didactic passages from the epistles. So you typically won't fall into this of only describing the facts of the text. Um, and that's okay, but I just want you to kind of hear that language begin to develop in your brains, and that is, wait, we are developing the message, 
we are not merely describing the text. We're developing the message in the homiletical outline, not merely describing the text. Description of the text will go into the sermon for sure to support the principles that we say are there. Okay, let's go to some basic types of subpoints to begin to, to think how this is going to occur for us. And the reason we're doing this, everyone, is what's ahead of us. You know that we're putting our sermons together for the semester, right? So here's where we're going in assignments. You've done main points. You've done propositions. You've done introductions. We're moving toward conclusions and subpoints. So you won't do it for next time. But your next big assignment is to return in your outlines with subpoints and conclusions. Okay, so as we continue to build the sermon. So what we're doing today is kind of saying, what are the nature of these subpoints? Even as we're moving toward, what's the nature of conclusions? So let's talk about some of the specific kinds of subpoints that there are. <clears throat> the first very basic form of subpoint in your notes there is analytical question responses. Analytical question answers or responses. What happens in your notes? I'm just going to read there first. For all subpoints in a main point, we ask, and you almost want to put in your notes, we ask out loud, we ask out loud a question, an overarching question like, how do we know that this is true? Or when should this apply in our lives? And then we answer the question with short statements that introduce the explanations. Here you go. Here's the main point. Because Jesus provides the only hope of salvation, we must present Christ despite our difficulties. Then we ask a question about that. This is known as interrogating the main point. Okay? We ask a question about it. And of course, in what types of difficulties must we present Christ? In circumstantial difficulties? In relational difficulties? In spiritual difficulties? Are these subpoints complete sentences? No, they're sentence fragments, right? But they are answers to this question that is a complete sentence. Okay, so that was, that's what makes the thought complete, the answer to the analytical question. So we ask a question about the main point, and then we answer that question with the subpoints. You see why it gets its name? Analytical question responses. Okay, see, so analytical question, and the subpoints are the responses to one overarching analytical question. Great question, Aaron. Is the analytical question considered a subpoint? No. The analytical question is only getting the subpoints ready. Okay, so the uh, the analytical question is just setting up the subpoint answers. Now, that was an analytical question response. Very similar, and the next major type of subpoint are interrogative subpoints. Interrogative subpoints. On your notes again for interrogatives. For this, for each subpoint, we ask a new question. Rather than having an overarching question that we answered with the subpoints, for each subpoint, we ask a new question. Now, in your notes, it's really important, even though I've underlined it, that you underline it too. We answer it immediately. We answer the question immediately with a concise statement, then show where the statement was derived, 
and give the explanation that supports the statement. Do not delay the answer until after the explanation. The ear does not have the patience of the eye. This is again where sermons will differ from essays. Many of you have been taught to write essays with that very powerful way of ask questions, then develop the answer, then give the answer. Okay? So the eye is saying, well, now here's an important question. Why is the population of Greece diminishing today? And then you begin to say, this happened to Greece, this happened to Greece, this happened to Greece. Well, it's because of the wars that have gone. And so we get all these explanations, and then we get the final conclusion. And the conclusion comes at the end of the paragraph, or maybe two or three paragraphs. We don't do that in preaching. In preaching, we say, what types of difficulties may we face? Christ's enemies. Look in the verse it says. Then I begin to explain my answer. So the question sets up the answer that is given immediately in an interrogative subpoint, And then we begin to explain how we got that answer. Aaron, now ask your question again. Is the question a subpoint? Thank you. What a good question. <laughs> is the question a subpoint? No. The answer is the subpoint. Okay. The answer is the subpoint, which means we're going to try to keep our answers as well as the questions, as parallel as possible. Not just the questions parallel. We need the parallelism of the questions. So the ear is saying, oh, he's beginning another subdivision here. So we have what types of difficulties may we face? Christ's enemies. What helps us face these difficulties? Christ's armies. Here where I'm striving to get parallelism, where am I going to explain what Christ's armies means? Now in the paragraph that follows. And looking at the text and developing what is there about Christ's armies. But the questions are as parallel as possible, and the answers are as parallel as possible, too. Okay? Because technically, the answer holds the subpoint. We're getting to the subpoint by the questions. So, again, I didn't even read this main point. Because Jesus provides the hope of salvation, we must present Christ despite our difficulties. Underline would be the anchor clause. So we're developing. We must present Christ despite our difficulties. That's the, if that's the main idea, we must present Christ despite our difficulties. They've got obvious questions. What types of difficulties may we face? Christ's enemies. Another main question. Well, then what helps us face those difficulties? Christ's armies. So it's a way of moving through the explanation by repetitive questions. It's actually a very engaging way to preach. It's, it's typically... Um, what should I say? It's typically not the way you think of developing outlines when you write them. You know, you'll do an outline, you'll kind of do bullets. Most of us do. So the way we write outlines is as bullet statements. But you'll find the way often to present them very engagingly is to keep asking questions. Ask questions out loud and then respond to your own questions. It's, it's dealing very sympathetically to the hearer. If I were sitting in your seat, what question would I be asking? Then go ahead and ask it. And people, you know, he knows what's in my mind. That guy reads my mail, you know. He, he knows exactly what I'm thinking. And all you're doing is you're asking the questions you would naturally ask if you were the listener, but you're asking the questions for the listener. And then answering them as the way of developing the thought of the passage. The last uh, form, basic form of subpoints is what we probably thought would be the first form, and that is bullet statements. 
bullet statements. These are sentences or sentence fragments again that are not set up by questions. They are simply statements in themselves. So, because Jesus provides the only hope of salvation, we must present Christ despite our difficulties. In the midst of busyness, in the face of fear, in the storm of anger. All right? So, I'm simply moving as bullet statements, developing what we do to present Christ despite our difficulties. Now, there's something I just wanted to show you conceptually, the difference between analytical question responses, interrogatives, and bullet statements. But I think you recognize, if we were actually developing this in an outline, what's missing? Verse references. There'd be verse references going with each of the subpoints so that they would typically look more like this. Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation, we must present Christ in difficult situations. Facing circumstantial obstacles, verse 12. Facing spiritual obstacles, verses 13 through 14. Now, of course, just seeing it here in an outline doesn't mean we're going to say it all that way. We've got paragraphs of explanation now to explain verse 12 and to explain verses 13 and 14. And we'll begin to develop those in that paragraph of thought that falls under that subpoint. But the subpoint again is the thought peg we hammer on the door so we can now hang lots of information on it. Okay, let me let me show you some examples, okay, and then take questions because I know you'll have them. But let me let me show you some more examples and we'll show you positive things and then negative things and uh, begin to consider them. Um, here, as we're looking at this first set of subpoints, I've already indicated to you they are they are bullets, right? There's not a question above them. And it's not a question that goes with each one of them. So you know that these are bullet subpoints. And they will answer similar diagnostic questions. Like, when are our difficulties? Or what are our difficulties? Right? Circumstantial or spiritual. You say different ways of answering those things. Look at these next and tell me what type of subpoints are these? Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation, we must preach Christ to difficult people. Who are these people? Those without mercy. How must we deal with those people? As those with mercy. What type of subpoints are they? They're interrogatives. You've got a different question setting up each of the subpoints. Now, are the subpoints exactly parallel? They're not, but you do see there's an attempt to make them as parallel as possible. Okay? To, to try to make them similar in wording as we can. So the first was without mercy, something about without mercy. The next is kind of a, a contrast parallelism, right? Without mercy, with mercy. And we're trying to get that ear working to hear the concepts behind the main point. We recognize the difficult people are those without mercy. How do we deal with them? As those who have mercy, we with mercy. Okay, So we're trying to get parallel wording as much as possible. This, what is this? Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation, we must preach Christ despite our difficulties. What sorts of difficulties may we face? Oh, what sorts of difficulties? Uh, in the face of present frustration, in the face of past failure. What kind of subpoints are those? They are answers to analytical questions. That's right. So they're analytical question responses. One overarching question, and then the responses to that one question. 
So those are, those are the different types. Let me show you some negatives, and then I'll take your question, okay? Show you some that may have some problems. Just look at the main point, if you would. Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation, we must preach Christ in difficult situations. Peter ignored the authorities. Peter spoke from jail. What's the problem here? He's describing the text rather than developing the message. Okay? Is it true in the text that Peter ignored the authorities and that Peter spoke from... All true... But these are not, homileticians' word, these are not principalized subpoints. The principle is not developed. We describe the text, but we don't have wording that enables us to deal with we must preach Christ in difficult situations. What might be something Peter ignored the authorities? We must preach Christ in difficult situations. Peter ignored the authorities. Can you make it into a principle? We must preach Christ in difficult situations. We must preach Christ when opposition comes. Okay, I've got a principle now. Okay, How do I know that? Because Peter went ahead and preached despite the opposition of authorities. Okay, So we must preach Christ despite opposition. How about Peter spoke from jail? What's a, a subdivision there? Against all odds. Against opposition, against all odds, we've even got some assonance going with O's, <laughs> with the O's there going. So Peter spoke from jail against all odds. Uh, any other ideas? Against opposition? Despite circumstances, despite constraint. You know, there, there might be various ways that we could talk about it, but we're looking for principles. So that would be uh, how we would just identify the proper way to go there. What's the problem here? Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation, and you have to answer this by looking and finding what's the magnet and what's the anchor clause. Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation, we must preach Christ to difficult people. First, Jesus died to save the ungodly. Second, Jesus alone can save. What's the problem here? Okay. Aaron is saying it, but Michael's saying it, I think, even more scientifically. Which clause are the subpoints developing? The subpoints are developing the anchor clause. What should they be developing? The magnet clause. Now, Aaron, your point is so on target here. He said it's not developing the obvious question. It's not, because the obvious question comes out of the magnet clause. The magnet clause is what the ear says. That's what the issue is. Why aren't you dealing with the issue? Okay, so there you have somebody developing the anchor rather than the magnet clause. Try one more. Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation, we must preach Christ despite our difficulties. Number one, our preaching will bring hate. Number two, prayer overcomes opposition. What are potential problems here? What's lacking in those two main points? Wording. No parallelism. Thank you, David. That's it. I mean, we would say it's true, but now here's something. Once, once you see it and begin to speak to people regularly, you automatically hear. Most ears would not even have picked these up as subpoints. Wouldn't even have heard them. They're part of that mud wall of words coming. And because they are not distinguished by parallelism, we don't even pick them out of the mud wall. Okay? They're just part of the mass. 
we don't even hear them as anything different because they're not worded in parallel. They have no audio flags to make us say, oh, that's the point you're making. Because they are not worded in parallel. They're just like every other sentence that's going by. Okay, questions that you have about subpoints, Stephen? Should you be very uh, concerned in the intro to establish the anchor clause? And I think the answer is not real. The anchor clause is typically something that everybody sees right away. Okay? So if you're having to spend three or four paragraphs to develop the anchor clause, it probably shouldn't be the anchor clause. I think it's something that your instincts will kind of tell you, you know, this needs to be kind of very obvious from the text. People are almost going to agree from the first time you say it rather than need a lot of proof. So if, if, you're, if your uh, statement is something like, because God is sovereign, we should honor him, um, if, if your real message is saying, what does it mean for God to be sovereign, then that probably ought to be the message, okay, and not we honor him. Maybe you just need to say, you know, the, the anchor clause now is going to be we should honor him. So the introduction is just about we should honor whoever is sovereign. Well, people agree with that. That doesn't need a lot of proof. We should honor what's, who is sovereign. So you establish, I think, when I, I actually use the word establish more than I use the word prove. Establish the anchor clause just before or after the proposition. If it needs a paragraph, fine. You know, what, what does sovereign mean? It means God's in charge and you're not. You know, that's what it means. Well, okay, ready to roll now. I probably don't want to spend a whole lot of time more on sovereign. But if I'm dealing with a congregation that has no concept of what sovereign means, I may have to deal a whole sermon on what does it mean for God to be sovereign. And then I'm really going to be particularizing that a lot more. I think I over-answered your question, which you were saying just basically, do I need to be real concerned about developing the anchor clause in the introduction? And I want to say, establish it, but don't spend it, you know, sentence upon sentence upon sentence doing it. If you're doing that, it's probably not the right anchor clause yet. Yes, question. Good. Good. It, it, it's a great question. What's the real difference between bullet statement subpoints and analytical question responses? Because if you actually look at them on paper, they're pretty much the same, except for the fact that there's been that overarching question. And really the only answer is, the difference is the overarching question. It's the way you get into them. Bullet statements typically are not being set up by questions, whereas analytical question responses are set up by that overarching question. And remember that language if you interrogate your main point? You've got a main point, and you actually ask a question about it, and then it shows why you're developing this bullets that you are. Bullets without the question, without the overarching question, are usually just subdivisions of thought that don't need questions to set them up. It's, again, a good question. Would you ask the question again explicitly before every subpoint? And I think it's your option. If it's the same question over and over again, though, it's, again, that overarching question, and you might very well ask it two or three times within the development. You might very well. By the way, you, you'll see this, and I think you, you all kind of probably rush by it in Chapter 6 because you're getting so much information coming at you. It's the standard way of also developing propositions and main points. Proposition, we interrogate the proposition, we ask a strong statement, we should honor God. Well, how do we honor God? Well, because he's sovereign, we obey him. Because he's sovereign, we trust him. Because he's sovereign, we, you know, worship him. But that first question, what should we do in response, was the overarching question even that set up the main points? 
What I'd love for you to do, and, and you're not, in a sense, our English essays have trained us not to do it, is just to get in that oral medium of just ask lots of questions. It's kind of the way you proceed through the message, question upon question. I, I'm a very question preacher. Does that make sense? Ask a lot of questions. And I often find when I'm in Presbyterian circles and I'm asking questions in a sermon, people start talking back to me. And then they get embarrassed because they're in Presbyterian circles and they don't think they ought to be doing that. But, but it's actually, in a certain sense, my mark that I'm communicating. Because they're so much with me now that they're starting to throw the answers back to me. And uh, I actually like that engagement a whole lot. So I think the more you communicate, the more you'll find the value of, again, sitting in the listener's seat and asking out loud the questions they would ask if they felt they could. So um, analytical question responses is just a way of getting us into that. I saw questions over here. Doug? Yes. Um, Doug's question is, in the interrogative subpoints particularly, how important is it to have parallelism in the question as well as the answer? I'll just kind of tell you that what standard happens when you're writing sermons. Almost everybody puts the questions in parallel. The ear just knows to do that. Even as you're writing out, you know, well, to make this question kind of stand out, I need... But what they don't do is they don't put their answers in parallel. So you've actually moved beyond, and you've said, well, I know the answer needs to be parallel, does the question. When you're writing the sermon, it's typically the opposite that occurs. People almost always know to make their questions parallel, but they sometimes forget to make their answers parallel. So my big emphasis is on making the answers parallel. I think your instincts will tell you to make the questions parallel. Thank you. What, what if what I need to do in my subpoints is not only identify what I am saying, but what I'm not saying? Just say exactly that. It's very powerful. Sure. Exactly. I, I think that's. I mean, everybody knows exactly what you're doing it and why. In fact, I think you will find yourself over and over in the future as you're preaching, finding here's what I'm not saying to be a very important technique to learn, right? Because so often what people do is they impose upon what you have said their thoughts, and you know they're going to do it. So for you as a preacher to actually anticipate not only objections, but aberrations, actually anticipate them and begin to say, I'm not saying this, I'm not saying this, I'm not saying this, I am saying this, is actually a very powerful strategy for communicating truth. That would fall under the subpoints. Well, I'm not, you could even make it a main point. I mean, you, you, not, not yet in Prependale. I mean, you're kind of going down where we're going here a ways. But you could even say in a... In a two-point main point sermon, you could say, here's what I'm not saying, here's what I am saying. I mean, you could set up that contrast in the overall sermon. So it's, it's often very powerful to do just exactly those things. Yes, go ahead. Yes. It, are the subpoints the places that you can begin to introduce text from other passages, references to other passages? And the answer is yes, definitely, with this big qualification, so long as you prove the idea was here first before you went over there. So if, if you said um, we should honor God and you're preaching from 1 Corinthians 5, and what I see in that parenthesis is 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm going to go, now I know there's something in 1 Thessalonians 4 that backs you up, but I want to see it in 1 Corinthians 5 first before you jump over there. So it is supporting what this text says not establishing what this text says by going somewhere else. It, it is, as you just said, it's supporting references. 
which means I've got something here first that gets me going down this path. So, yes, we definitely will recognize the power of supporting texts. We will also recognize the danger of eisegesis, importing text on this one to make it say what it doesn't say. Okay? So, establish it's here and then support it over there, but establish it's here first. Okay? Question? Yes? Great question. You hear it, everyone? If you use interrogative in the first main point, do you have to use interrogatives in the second main point? And the answer is absolutely not. Okay? You could, in fact, this is really a good technique to, to move different kinds within the sermon itself. Same question on number of subpoints. If you have two subpoints in the first main point, do you have to have two in the second main point? Absolutely not. Okay? Each one is autonomous. What, what allows it to do, what allows you to best explain that main point? It may have no subpoints. It may have three. It may have two. It may be interrogatives, maybe bullets, maybe anal Whatever enables you to best explain that main point, it can operate autonomously from the others. Great question, because I know that causes confusion. Aaron? Thank you. Aaron says, when you talk about the subpoints being parallel, are they parallel to each other, or are they parallel to the main point in proposition? And the answer is, to each other. They are parallel in wording to each other not necessarily to the main point in proposition. Michael, you hear the question? If, if, you're, if you're just dealing with one text, one verse, and you're subdividing it and then developing the idea from other texts, is that inappropriate? It is not inappropriate. Actually, we'll look at it in just a bit. That what, you, what you actually technically just described is called a textual sermon, not an expository sermon. So we won't do it this semester. Okay? We won't say it's wrong. It's got its place, but we're first going to do expository messages. And expository messages take, by definition, main points and subpoints from this text. Textual messages, by definition, take main points from the text and developmental subpoints from other texts. Okay, so they're not wrong, got a rich history, but what's the danger of them? Making this text say something it doesn't by, by pulling in those other texts first. So we're really just, you know what we're doing this semester? We're just kind of locking ourselves down hermeneutically. Is our interpretation correct? So we're looking at this text and we're saying, what is true and what to do about it? Can I prove that from this text? From this text, can I establish this outline? Can I preach this message? Now, we know we'll do lots of other things in the future. But right now, we're just kind of making sure, I want to make sure I can say what God says. I'm going to explain this text to you. That's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to explain this text to you. And that's the goal that we're striving for, knowing more to do in the future. But right now we're just saying, I want this expositor's ethic to be my own. Let me explain this text to you. And uh, that's where we're going. Let me just get other information in front of you. This, this next is just kind of general order things that I want you to be aware of. As you think of the standard order of the divisions of the text, you now kind of see how the pieces come. You announce the text, scripture intro, we announce the text, we might say at times, then scripture reading, prayer for illumination, introduction, proposition, main point statement. Now look at that first main point statement. You'll have subpoint, subpoint, subpoint. That is, get to be back on our kind of board here, subpoint, subpoint, subpoint. We're dividing the explanation, right? So we have. Three subpoints, could be two, could be four. But anyway, we have subpoints that divide the explanation. We're then going to move into illustration. 
than application. And that's exactly what it shows under main point development number one there. But look at the second one. You have one subpoint, then you have the illustration, then you have two subpoints, then you have the application. Anything wrong with that? No, not a bit. We might say, you know what, these second two subpoints are going to flow very easily if they get the first one. The first one is really the foundation that sets up the next two. So I actually want to spend my illustrative nickel, as it were, on making sure this first subpoint really locks into their brains. And then I'll go back to the subpoints. So we're back to, the, there's not a canonical order. You know, they have to do just this, then this, and this. We can move these things around. What I am going to ask you to do this semester and next, so that you just are prepared, is I will say one illustration per main point. Some of you will not like that because you won't like doing illustrations, just not your personality in nature. You won't like doing illustrations. Others of you love doing illustrations. You know, and I will get you, you know, some of you will do an illustration for every subpoint and every sub-subpoint and every sub and there'll be an illustration, illustration, you know. And I'm going to say, well, okay, that will come. But for right now, one illustration per main point, okay? But spend that nickel where you think you make best use of it, okay? So it might be um, after the first sub-point, you know, right in here before you get to the next two. It, it might not be there. It might be after all three. As a matter of fact, you now begin to know it might actually set up all three. Okay? Philip the preacher just said, uh-huh, <laughs> as one who, is, one who preaches. So the, the idea is wherever you can make best use of that illustration, great. All right? Now, we'll talk a little bit later how illustrations do fit in ways that we find to make them mesh with the subpoints and the explanation. But for now, I just want you to recognize you've got options, okay, of where they might fit. It doesn't always have to come right after all the explanation. It might come after the portion that you think is most significant. Roman numeral six is just, I guess, for your feel of how sermons fit together, how, how they fit together. What are the standard links of the major divisions of a sermon. You're now beginning to get a sense of these different pieces of a sermon, maybe in a way you never thought of before. There are these different components of this taxonomy of the sermon. And some of you have said to me after class, you know, I'm listening to sermons these days, hopefully without a critical ear, but a more analytical ear, right? You begin to hear, oh, that was the introduction. Oh, that was the proposition. You know, I'm hearing how he's putting that illustration in there with those explanations. You begin to hear sermons for their divisions. But now you begin to think, what is the actual timing it takes to move through all these things? How long are the components as you begin to think about that final project that you're producing even for this semester? This may surprise you. It's kind of fun to go through the first time. The text announcement and scripture introduction. Well, you know, around a minute, maybe less, is what that usually takes, that, that little piece right on top. So that's on a page. If you look at the way your final sermon is typed, the example in your books, you know, if you just kind of looked, I mean, that's a third or less of a page. The scripture reading goes on one or two minutes, so it's, you know, half a page if you had typed it all out. The prayer for illumination, another minute, a third of a page. Sermon introduction, two to three minutes, so a half to two-thirds of a page. Sermon conclusion, two to three minutes, so again, you've got uh, a half a page or so. Closing prayer, what? 
minute or two there to another half a page. Now look at what that means. You haven't even got to the body of the sermon and how much of your 30 minutes is gone. A third of it. A third of it is gone and you haven't even got to the body of the sermon. But these are all necessary components in terms of what's going into the normal preaching occasion. I recognize you all are in different denominations, some of you, and so I, things can flip a little bit in terms of where they fit. But it's kind of interesting to see, you know what? Just the, the scripture reading, the prayers, the introduction, the conclusion, everything that's around the body itself takes about a third of my time, Zach. That's, that's single space, I think. If you, again, I don't know quite how to do it because we have so many different fonts on our computers these days. But if you look at the example that's in the back of your book, I'm kind of going off that kind of standard formatting of uh, that example that's at the back of your notebooks. So if that's the way it is, if a third of your time is, is in that surrounding material, then you think, uh, what are the average time and page lengths for the body of the 30-minute message? Just for the body itself. Well, of those 20 remaining minutes, each main point in a three-point message is roughly what? Six minutes. So, you know, if you've got three points, standard sort of thing, about, about six, seven minutes apiece, which means each main point in all its components is about two pages in length. It's about how long it goes, about two pages in length. How long did you think a sermon was when you heard it before you thought about it? You know, 20 pages, 25, 30 pages? <laughs> you know, what's it going to end up being? Seven and a half, eight pages. You know, that's, that's about, if you type, now most people don't type it all out, right? We're doing it for a project that we're doing this semester, but it's just getting our sense of proportion here. Each main component, therefore, if each point is about two pages or six minutes, then each main point component, again, if you just kind of went on a standard, a third, a third, a third proportion, the explanation is about two minutes, so, you know, two-thirds of a page. Illustration, two minutes, two-thirds of a page. Application, two minutes, two-thirds of a page. Each subpoint. So if you're dividing down now that explanation that was going two minutes or two-thirds of a page, that means each subpoint, if you got two of them, would be about a third of a page. Or what did we say? A good long paragraph. If it's getting longer than a long paragraph, you need another subpoint. But it's just kind of breaking down fairly naturally now. So if you've got a long paragraph, that typically is a subpoint. Then you've, of course, got your various extemporized comments. <laughs> and they're always, by the way, what get you in the most trouble. But the, the various extemporized con uh, uh, comments, another two minutes or so. So the conclusion of all that, the written content of a 30-minute sermon that includes only the scripture introduction, sermon introduction, sermon body, sermon conclusion, which you're writing out, will run seven and a half to eight pages. So as you're thinking about your project for the semester, kind of a way to think about it in terms of how those components fit together. Subpoint note, I've said it a few times now, but just so you can get it in your notes. In order to accomplish the a third, a third, a third exposition symmetry of a main point, the subpoints of explanation are usually how many paragraphs apiece? One. So just to fill in your notes, they're usually one paragraph apiece. As a rule of thumb, explanations longer than one paragraph need subpoint divisions. Now, one more important set of thoughts. What's the standard conceptual progression of a subpoint? So now I'm saying, get some of this off the board here. If I'm developing subpoints of that explanation, what usually happens first? 
So I've got subpoint one, subpoint two, subpoint three under a uh, under a main point. What will happen is we will say we should honor God. Look with me at verse two. It says, "In all your ways, acknowledge Him." Now, what that means is that wherever we go, whatever we're facing, whatever ways God takes us in life, we should be honoring God. Acknowledge God actually in the Hebrew means, I just did something. I said, first, it means we should honor Him. And then I said, look with me at verse 2. And then I began to explain what acknowledge means as it relates to honor. This is a standard progression, which is state, I state the truth, place, show where it is in the text, and then I begin to prove it with the explanation. So, the standard conceptual progression of a point is this. Number one, we state the truth. We make the main point or the subpoint statement. Two, we place the truth, show where it is in the text. And then three, we prove the truth. We prove that that text says that statement that I just said. Further on, you know, we'll begin to now illustrate and apply, but the subpoints themselves are following this pattern state, place, prove. We'll talk more about that as we go. There are various ways to do that. Just at the bottom of that page, where you see a, a caution, do you see that caution down at the bottom? you now begin to know you can start a main point with lots of different things. You can start with a principle statement or an illustration or even a particular application. What is the one thing, however, you cannot start a main point with? The wording is bald, as in without hair, bald explanation. Bald explanation. Here's what you can do in preaching that people will understand precisely what you're doing. You can begin with an illustration and then show its implications. You begin with an application and then show how you got that. You can begin with a principle statement and then show what proves the principle. What will just throw people for a loop, though, is if you just begin to throw explanation out them with no particular to anchor it. And you just begin to talk about the aorist. Or you begin to talk about the history of Israel. Or you begin to talk about the imprisonment of Paul and they're going... Why are you telling me this? It has no particular to anchor it. Okay? You can, anything will serve as a particular. Statement of truth, statement of application, or an illustration. But what you can't do is just start throwing information at people without such a particular. That is called bald explanation. Just throw material and it has no basis for why they're getting it. Okay? So that's the one thing you can't start with. The next page is just showing you variables of the things I've talked about today. And I don't want you to get too concerned about that. I almost never test on it. We'll talk a whole lot about the variables in future semesters. What we're doing is we're doing a fairly formal approach now, learning the pieces and seeing how they unfold. Where we're going, just so you're thinking about how you're planning, because you know we've got the preaching lectures in the middle of next week. So if you're thinking about how can you get kind of a jump on where we're going, you know that where we're heading is your main points with subpoints and conclusion. So if you want to begin working toward where we're going, begin to think about now subpoints. What am I going to be doing to develop subpoints, 
anchoring them in the text. By the way, I won't ask you to write out your subpoints yet. I just mean the statements of the subpoints, and then I'll ask you to attach a conclusion to it. We'll have a future lecture on conclusion. But you've got some time now. I do probably feel that there will be another quiz at the end of next week or the beginning of the next. So you've got a gap here, and my goal is to get you caught up again. Okay, so get up, caught up on your readings. Another quiz is coming, and the idea is start working on your subpoints. You know you're going to be hooking them to a conclusion, and there'll be a quiz coming either toward the end of next week or the beginning of that next week. You've got some time to get caught up, and that's my goal for you. Where we are in the readings, we will be, we will be next week we'll be at, re, at lecture 10. So it'll be reading number 10. Excuse me? I'm, try, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This Friday is lecture 10. Then you know you're going to be getting kind of a week's break till the next Friday, right? All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.